Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. You're listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to the first episode in the new year. We're welcoming one of my favorite artists. Pat Metheny is a musician. He's been called one of the greatest jazz guitarists of our time, a composer and prolific recording artist. He's also one of the most active touring performing artists of all time. He's kept up the pace of 120 to 240 shows a year, and he's been doing that since 1974. A 20-time Grammy Award winner, Pat Metheny has also collaborated with a variety of artists from Ornette Coleman, Jim Hall, David Bowie, Bruce Hornsby, Herbie Hancock, just to name a few. Pat Metheny, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Well, it's my pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for including me into your show. It's an honor. Well, I wanted to start with the now. Something that I like about being a Pat Metheny fan is that it seems like there's always something new. You're launching this new playing environment, and it's called Side Eye. Hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that and why you're doing this. You know, it's it's funny. Over the years, I've kind of, uh, first of all, been really lucky to be able to explore all the different aspects of music that, that have uh, interested me. And, you know, kind of early on, I discovered there was a certain value in delineating different things in certain kinds of ways. I mean, you know, a a big part of my life has been playing trio music, you know, with just bass and drums. And I've done, you know, a bunch of records like that. And then, you know, I've had, you know, groups of different types, you know, that have ranged from, you know, four people to up to seven or eight people kind of under the name of my own group. And I've done, you know, individual projects with, uh, as you mentioned, a number of other musicians and, you know, the, the whole kind of thing of, of having a, a, a life as a musician that sort of branched off into, to lots of different areas, you know, it kind of worked for me to, to sort of almost brand them in a certain way. And, you know, I notice now a lot of people do that. It seems to be, it wasn't that common to do that in the, you know, 70s and 80s. But now I see that quite quite a lot where people have, you know, this band and that band and this band and that band. The one thing about it for me is that as much as I kind of did that for, I would say, just sort of clarity the, the truth is kind of, it's all the same to me. I mean, you know, if it's my band or, uh, you know, I'm the leader of it, I kind of operate pretty much exactly the same way, regardless of, of who's in, who's on the bandstand. And I mean, in that sense, sort of everything I've done over the years, whether it, it comes right out and says Pat Metheny group or whatever, I mean, it's all, it's all kind of done the same way. And at the same time, you know, my main job in a lot of ways has been band leader. I mean, you know, and and kind of under the the heading of band leader has followed very naturally and organically writing music 
that fits a, a particular setting and, and even a particular group of musicians, hopefully, you know, trading on what I see their strengths as being. And kind of now at this point, it's more likely that I'm going to be investigating people who are a lot younger than me. You know, I mean, that's just kind of the way it works as, as time goes on. I mean, for many, many years, I was the young guy that was, uh, you know, playing with older people, but, you know, it's been pretty common for me over the last few years to, to have guys that were newer kinds of musicians that had captured my interest. And, you know, the the whole thing of having a band name and, okay, this band is this group of people and this band is this group of people, in a way, it's great to do that, but it also is a little bit limiting. And this whole idea of, of having a band, which we're calling the side-eye thing, is a chance to sort of keep it really open so that I can you know, have a, a platform to write for and sort of, I guess, kind of present younger musicians that have captured some, you know, some little bit of my uh, imagination. So I see it as something that's going to have a, a kind of revolving cast of characters. So what is it like when some of these younger musicians look to you as their mentor when they're in a bit of awe? You know, that goes away very quickly. And having, again, been on both sides of that equation, I mean, you know, I got to join Gary Burton's band when I was 18 years old, which for me was the equivalent of joining the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, that was, to me, that was the, my, that was my favorite band and everything about what that band represented at that time was, the ideal for me. And at the same time, within, you know, four bars of the first tune of the first concert, it's like, okay, that's great, but now it's time to 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 play and now it's time to make hopefully some music happen. And um you know, I've played with people who, you know, I mean I very recently have played uh, you know on birthday celebrations for Roy Haynes, who's now about to turn 94, I think. And I've played with people who were like nine or 10, you know, and there, there is of course a thing when that's happening, but once you go one, two, one, two, three, four, then you're in the world of music. And in that world, all that really matters is what does it sound like? What's happening? How does it feel? You know, are we all going to agree on whether this is going to be a, you know, a uh, minor seven flat five or a regular minor seven on that turnaround? I mean, you know, it's like all of those issues become much more of the thing rather than, oh my God, that's, you know, Herbie Hancock. You know, it's like at that point, once you're in there, you're in there. And um, it, it goes the other way now for me, too. It's like once I'm, you know, on the bandstand with anybody, it's really just about the music. As we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you're someone who performs a lot of concerts. What is the most important thing for a performer to do? I want to update 
slightly the numbers that you recited. Yes, it's true. There were many years in there where I was out on the road, you know, more than 200 days a year. It's been been quite a while since I've done anything at that number. You know, I, I have three kids now that range from uh, 19 down to nine. And those guys have been on the planet. I definitely have not done those kind of nine month long straight tours. Um, but I still am hanging out there, you know, a hundred at least a hundred gigs a year, I would say. So that's still quite a bit, but it, you know, it's not like those, you know, that those years from 77 till about 2000 or so, it was really like that. The thing for me about playing is that that's really the, uh, and when I say playing, I mean, playing concerts, playing gigs, that to me is the destination. You know, I mean, there, there were, there was, you know, this kind of what will probably be regarded as somewhat odd period from, you know, the, I don't know, late 1920s up to about 2005, where there was this thing called the record industry and records were king and recording. It was all about recordings. Even, you know, for for the time that, that I overlapped with that sort of golden era, to me, the records were always kind of an ad to get people to come to the gig. I mean, I definitely took it more seriously as time went on. But to me, the the thing of going out and playing for people, playing gigs, that is why I wanted to be a musician. So, you know, the the bandstand is that's church for me. I mean, that's that's where everything leads. And there's also a kind of uh, liquidity to that. I mean, you know, it, it's something that 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 is very ephemeral, you know, it comes and goes, you know, it's like that gig was that gig. And due to the nature of what improvisation is and this general area of music, what it represents, I encourage people to go, go to gigs and hear their, hear their favorite musicians because that's it. That's the destination. And it happens at one time and that's it. And that's something really special. It's very unusual. And, um, you know, as a, you know, I basically became a musician myself because I'm a fan of, of music and, and in particular, I'm a fan of musicians like Joe Henderson or Milt Jackson and, you know, Jimmy Smith and, you know, Wes Montgomery and Paul Blay and on and Bill Evans and on and on and on. But, you know, those guys are no longer on the planet and we can have tributes and we can listen to recordings, but. That was it. It happened that one time. That was it. And, you know, all of the musicians that are represented in this community, that's it. You know, you, when you hear them live, that's what, the, that's what the thing is. And records do a little bit of something, or at least they did, because it's becoming now much more difficult in a way to... Uh, to manage to document a career as an improviser the way maybe it was because the you know the whole system that allowed you to be able to do that has pretty much gone away so um you know in a way it was good that i never really bought too much into the recording thing i i always you know thought that well that's great and i and i love being able to do that but to me gigs have always been the destination what band or artist would we maybe be surprised to learn you're a fan of? 
Well, probably in my case, there wouldn't be too many surprises because it's pretty well known that I am, you know, an enthusiastic uh, follower of, you know, pretty much <laughs> everything, really. I mean, um, you know, I can hear a bunch of garbage cans getting knocked down a flight of stairs, and that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> so, you know, what I like it, it, it is what I like is when I hear people play where I get the feeling if they didn't play that way, they would go crazy. Hmm. They must play that way, you know, and it doesn't really matter to me what it is. It's like, you know, and if it can have that quality combined with creativity, because really, I mean, as much as people talk about styles of music and genre and all that stuff, which almost always is, is, it's not really about music when you get down to it. It's really more about politics, actually, and culture and stuff like that. Um, what I like is creativity, uh, you know, in, in whichever form it, it occurs. And, I mean, in terms of models of creativity, I mean, we have some, you know, incredible, you know, uh, examples of, of what creativity can be in the Beatles, for instance. I mean, in nine years, what, what happened over that arc in, in terms of creativity is just unreal. Or Bach, I mean, you know, it's like th those are the levels of achievement that for me are unbelievably inspiring. And And then, you know, the people that kind of in the general area that I travel in, you know, that have defined the language. I mean, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, and you know, Louis Armstrong on my instrument, Wes Montgomery, um, you know, uh, Jim Hall, you know, kind of in the general area of modern music, Keith Jarrett, or, you know, Chick Corea is a great example. I mean, there, there, are, there are so many people who have really, uh, you know, taking the, the idea of what it is to be creative and also connected that to unbelievable amounts of, of skill and uh, mastery and, and understanding and wisdom about what music is. Those are the people that, that, you know, ultimately attract me. But at the same time, I can go to one of my kids' school concerts and get completely blown away by just the joy that, you know, music brings to a bunch of people, you know, that, that are as participants, as parents, as friends or whatever. I mean, you know, music can, can function in, on many, many different levels. Something that's been a really great resource that I want to call the attention to the, the listeners, it's the book, it's called The Pat Metheny Interviews by Richard Niles. Great read. And in one of the interviews, you're talking about the things that your parents were into. Like, I think you mentioned the Glenn Miller Orchestra and their favorite yep. song being Stardust. Yep. What we now call the Great American Songbook. I'm curious, what are your feelings about those kind of songs? Well, you know, for me, the the idea of composition is is, is one that kind of emerged originally for me as a opportunity to explore the things that I liked and that I hoped to get to as an improviser that I was not able to find in other places. 
And kind of to my surprise, that whole issue of, I mean, we can call it composition, songwriting, whatever that is, you know, has more and more found a place at the heart of a lot of my activities, including the band leading thing that I talked about before. And, and, and through that, I mean, it, you know, in many ways, I'm kind of coming to it backwards, which is my appreciation in a lot of ways of just sort of the, the, the resiliency and, and the kind of the the way those tunes, I mean, by that, I mean, the classic standard tunes that we all know and that we all love, the, the, the way that they retain whatever makes them what they are, no matter who plays it, under what circumstances, if, as long as somebody plays kind of the right notes of Stardust and somebody else plays kind of the right bass line and, you know, maybe there's one or two right notes of harmony in there, it's going to just sound great. And it's indestructible. You can't mess it up as long as you kind of just do what, what's there on the page. And, you know, to me, and kind of, again, in our, in our zone more specifically, Monk is, is kind of the, the, uh, a guy that, to me, the, those, you know, 20 Monk tunes that are kind of the ones that, that, that get called a lot, they're indestructible. You can't mess them up. They're, as long as somebody plays, you know, kind of what, what he wrote, he's going to be in the room, everybody's going to sound great. You know, that quality of being able to get played night after night after night, a hundred times a year or, or, you know, over many, many years is something that I've, I aspire to. And I use those tunes, Stardust being a particularly great example as real models of, of whatever that thing is, it's, which is actually quite difficult to describe. I mean, a lot of it has to do with melody, which is the one thing that you really can't describe. I mean, we can talk about harmony and rhythm all day long, but and and there's you could go to college for four years of harmony and four years of rhythm, but melody is just it's it's such a uh, it's such a mysterious thing that that uh, you know you can't really break down what makes a good melody. I mean, you can sort of make a couple. You know, like, yes, it's nice if they do these kind of interval leaps or whatever, but but actually that doesn't begin to cover what makes a good melody a good melody. Hmm. I think this was the last time you were in Atlanta. I had the chance to record an interview backstage with Antonio Sanchez, who was drumming with you. And he said something to me that, that struck me. He said, jazz musicians in general tend to be a little snobby. They tend to be a little snobby with the audience. And I'm hoping I can get your thoughts on that. Well, I know what he's talking about. Weirdly, I would say that's much worse in his generation. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know what happened in there somewhere where people got the idea that somehow there was a, a level of entitlement build into just being a good musician. And, you know, for me, I was lucky to be around, I guess, old, older school type 
musicians in Kansas City when I grew up and uh, was able to play with them. And then, you know, people like, you know, Gary Burton or Herbie or Jack DeJanet or, you know, these guys, to me, it's like they always took it very seriously in the best way in that they, you know, as I described, you know, a little earlier, the, the, the whole idea of the bandstand is kind of a, it's like almost sacred ground. You know, you, you, you get there through a process that, that sort of mandates a, a kind of reverence to not just the music, but the, the privilege of being on the bandstand. Now, having said all that, you know, to me, a lot of, of what I've tried to do over the years in terms of presenting the music in a way that hopefully is uh, just conscientious to the fact that somebody had to take a shower and go pick up their date and park the car and get the ticket and do all the stuff that one has to do to, um, you know, get it together to be to be there that night, to me, I always try to think, okay, well, if that was me, because it, it could have been, I mean, you know, I, I'm a fan too. I go to concerts. It's like, what would I expect to have happen? And to me, it's like the, you know, the, the band shouldn't be doing a sound check in front of the stage The there should be a sense of what it is that's being communicated, hopefully in a way that is, I don't want to use the word entertaining. It's more considerate. And sort of along the lines of that, to me, is just some of the basic tenets of, you know, let's call it showbiz, of, of sort of like, you know, making things clear and making things inalienable as they can possibly be to an audience that has gone to a certain amount of effort to just be there. And I put that more in the realm of consideration. And what I, when I'm kind of talking about the younger dudes, lots of times, you know, I hear about a song, like some new guy and, you know, I go hear them and they're like, just not, they're not together. It's like, man, they didn't rehearse and doesn't seem like they really know what they want to play. And, you know, I just am, I kind of, walk away like puzzled like well man come on you guys and I, to me that i think comes off a little bit as being you know condescending to the audience which in a way it kind of is are there any rituals or an environment that you try to get or have that you find that works best when it comes to creativity you know, it's funny. I wish there. I wish I was able to nail that down, whatever that would be. But I found that it's, for the most part, elusive. The one thing that I do know, though, is you got to show up. It sort of doesn't matter where or under what circumstances. At least for me, in in terms of coming up with ideas, you know, the the sort of hard work of it all. I need a lot of time for that. I need to set aside time and I need to just be in a place could be anywhere. I mean, it could be, you know, I mean, I, I've come up with a lot of my, what I would say, better ideas under horrible conditions. And I've been in amazingly perfect, beautiful places and never come up with anything. (laughs) In fact, I would say it probably leans more towards the the worse the place is, the more likely it is I'm going to come up with something. 
you know, it's, but even having said that, I think that it's really just a matter of putting in the hours, at least for me. You know, the other thing for me is that at this stage of the game, I am, you know, so far, you know, into my thing. I mean, I'm 500 tunes or so in that I kind of have to re kind of write through everything that I've ever written to get to new ones because the stuff, I mean, and this is good. I mean, there, there's really no part of anything along the way where I look at it and I go, oh, that was horrible. That was a terrible idea. What was I thinking? I mean, I still kind of stand by really everything from Brightside's life on. I mean, it's all kind of one big idea in a way for me. But there's also, I understand, there's really no need for me to rewrite that tune tune X on X record X again. And I'm naturally inclined to kind of go there because I still do like the way that chord moves to that chord. And even sometimes I'll find a new meaning of what that chord moving to that chord means. But, you know, my rate of uh, success with sort of, I mean, and in this case, we're talking about songwriting or tunes or, or composition. I mean, I'm pretty much like one for eight. I got to write eight things to get one that I like. And when I say I like one that I feel like I could play a hundred nights in a row and find something to say about it every time. So, yeah, I mean, it's like that. But then the other side of creativity for me is actually the more kind of thing of just going out on the road and playing gigs, which is a much more, a much easier kind of creativity for me personally, because I've done it for now 50 years. So my whole metabolism is kind of geared to that. And, you know, the, the thing of playing gigs every night is something that's just an unbelievable thrill, a real privilege. And kind of gets you in a place uh, personally that's very unusual in the sense that you're in a different city every day, you're traveling on a bus every night, you're living this uh, life of almost total immediacy. It's all about, you know, what time is the sound check? What time is the the gig? And what do I have to do to be able to to, to get to my thing tonight, to be able to play as good as I can. And, you know, especially after week after week of that, you get into this, you know, really living in the present thing. And like I often say, all those issues of, you know, like what happens when you die and stuff like that, you're not thinking about that stuff. You're just thinking about, you know, why did I mess up that uh, major seven sharp five chord on the third tune last night? And what do I have to do to not do that tonight? And stuff like that stuff like that, you know, so that kind of creativity actually is, 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 you know, it's almost like there, it's, I don't want to exactly make a parallel with, with being an athlete, but, you know, I think that like, for instance, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, is kind of like the, you know, in his world, the John Coltrane, the, the most creative, most creative kind of of athlete, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, it's it's something like that, in that you're going to be faced with this uh, this set of possibilities each night, and you know, the boundaries of the basketball court court for us would be what tunes are we going to play, and what's who's the drummer, and what's what's the the vibe of the band, you know, and sort of anything can happen within the, those those boundaries.
I've left some of your performances with kind of like a, a glow. Is there anything you feel from your audiences? Is there an emotion that you pick up? You know, I did a talk recently to a bunch of neuroscientists, and a topic a little like this came up. And I gave an answer that I think confused people a little bit. And I want to, I want to kind of be careful about that. My connection to the music that I'm involved in playing myself is, it's difficult for me to step outside of it. And because I'm so in it, I don't have the luxury of being able to, in any objective way, see it or hear it or anything except being it. And to the degree that I'm aware of the audience, which is, again, as I described before, more kind of a matter of consideration on almost a personal level than it is on a musical level. From the time I start playing until the time the concert is over, I've come to understand the best place for me to be is inside the music. And sort of how people react to the music, of course, I'm thrilled that people, you know, are hopefully enjoying it, that they like it, and and, you know, that they come even. I mean, you know, the fact that people, you know, are aware of what my thing is and how it's evolved over these years is, is just incredible. But at the same time, I don't feel like I, I have the kind of, a bit, maybe it's an ability or, or talent or skill to go outside and look at it as it's happening or even right afterwards my responsibility to the music is absolutely from within and my and this is this is the harder part my only satisfaction i mean i wish i could get a lot out of the you know the reaction of other people and i do my best to appreciate it but i know in my heart the only satisfaction i really get is if when I go home and I kind of replay the concert in my mind, which I kind of do each night, that I feel like I actually got to, to the stuff that I'm hoping to get to a little bit better than I did before or even in, at all. And in that sense, you know, I mean, I would be pretty happy to just kind of stay in a room for the rest of my life and practice. You know, to me, music is something that's very um, personal. And it kind of almost gets to the point for me, especially recently, I almost don't feel like I even have to play. I can just kind of think about it. And music has become this sort of whole other thing for me where it's, it's, it's something that it's more like an indicator of things than a thing. And um, it's, it's the things that are underneath music that are that are really where the where the action is for me you know the music is such an amazing mysterious and and sort of it's almost uh it's kind of unspeakable in a way what music is you know but i think for musicians that really live a life inside music as time goes on you start to understand that music is sort of a connector to to 
things that may or may not even be about what music itself sounds like. It's more like what music is. You were mentioning just a little while ago the Bright Size Life album, and I've been listening to that lately. And I'm wondering if you can tell us, how did that feel to make your first album? Well, I was very lucky at that time to be around Gary Burton for many reasons. I mean, you know, being in that band, as I described before, was something in and of itself unbelievable to me. But besides that, Gary, Steve Swallow, Bob Moses, Mick Goodrick, the the other musicians that were in Gary's band then, were all incredible mentors for me in different ways. And Gary in particular, because Gary had gone through something that I think he recognized could could have happened with me, which is, you know, Gary started making records of his own when he was 18, 19 years old, and I think had a lot of uh, regrets almost about the first few records that he made. And he put the brakes on on it a little bit for me. I mean, I had the chance to, to do what would have been my first record for, for ECM about two years before I actually did Bright Side's Life. And, you know, when you're, you know, 17 or 18 years old, two years is like, you know, 50 years. And Gary really kind of just said, don't make the same mistakes I made in the sense that when you make your first record, you should assume that's the only record you will ever make because it might be. And that really stuck with me. And you know, I kept, I started bringing the, the music in that I was working on to Gary. And he, you know, he, he was in a great way, very, very critical and, and unbelievably useful for me to, as, as somebody, because I mean, not only could he just understand it on sort of a, let's say a career level or whatever, he could also kind of get under the hood of, you know, knowing the way that I played and, you know, as I was kind of coming up with concepts that I would run by him, you know, having a lot of good things to say about or good suggestions. And um, he finally, you know, after this had gone on for a while and I was getting more and more restless to, to actually do it, he finally heard the band that I had at the time with this unknown bass player, which of course ends up being... Jocko Pastorius, but nobody knew that at the time, <laughs> and Bob Moses. And, you know, the the record company sort of had an interest in me doing a record that was more like a, you know, with some established type people, which, of course, was incredibly exciting to me as a young fan and everything. But Gary was like, you should really do it with your band, with these guys. And uh, so that's what it ended up being. And... um and Gary was there in the studio. He's not credited as a producer, but he, he should have been. I received all of these press clippings, different magazine articles. This this man named Terry Kane sent me Jazz's Magazines uh, when he found out I was going to be interviewing you. And there was something that I thought was really interesting. It was um, where the interviewer, he would mention a few jazz guitarists, and you said whatever your thoughts were. And there was just a couple that I felt I wanted to know the answer to, just if you could briefly give your thoughts. Larry Carlton. Well, to me, Larry was an unbelievable musician. 
and particularly the the contribution that he made around the time of Joni Mitchell's, you know, records like especially Cord and Spark and and that era was, you know, really a new way of thinking about playing, not to mention on the Steely Dan records and, you know, again, just the way that he's able to to play inside of a rhythm section and inside of a band just you know brand a brand new way of doing it at that time what about bill frizzell well you know it's funny because bill was um you know a guy that i met in boston who called me up like a lot of people did back then and wanted to come and take a lesson and um i was like okay and so he came over and you know he was very jim hall then he was playing on a 175 and you know really sounded a lot like jim and at the same time he was already bill too and you know it's it's kind of interesting you know both he and and john Schofield, even though they're both like 3 or 4 years older than me they they came along kind of after me by a few years. You know, it's funny that I would be talking about Bill now as somebody who was calling me to come over and take a lesson, right? But, you know, he was just kind of like getting going then. And in fact, you know, the first thing I said was, well, you don't need any lesson. (laughs) And then, you know, right around then, my older brother, Mike, was about to do one of his early records. And I was like, hey, would you play on my brother's record? And I think that might have been Bill's first record date. And, you know, then shortly after that, I was, this would have been late 70s, early 80, around the time I did the 8081 record. And Jack DeJanette couldn't do part of that tour, so I got Paul Motion to do it. And Paul was kind of like, saying he had this idea where he wanted me and a saxophone player to be a trio with him. And, you know, I was already, you know, well underway with the band and, and, you know, everything, a lot of things were happening around that time and I, I couldn't do it. I said, but you know, I know this guy, he would be great for you. (laughs) So that was Bill. And, uh, so we, you know, he and I talk about that a lot and, and, uh, and of course he, you know, went on and continues to 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 be this unbelievably unique, amazing, incredible force in music. And I'm just uh, kind of in awe of him in a lot of ways. He's really just like a beautiful musician. Just one more, Lee Rittenauer. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lee is kind of about my age, I think, and. In a lot of ways, my awareness of him was more just from studio records and him being a kind of West Coast uh, guy that I wasn't all that familiar with. And then later on, you know, it became clear that the West thing was huge for him the way it was for me. And in, in fact, you know, he ended up doing a record, I think, that was really a tribute to West. You know, I was probably able to connect more as a listener to that because that's stuff that I love so much. And I think he's even got a guitar that's kind of like almost like a West type guitar that Gibson made for him, but it's a little bit smaller that I've had my eye on for 
a long time too. <laughs> it's like I want to get a Lee Rittenauer model Gibson, you know. So, and I see him every now and then. There's this camp up in Montana that's a guitar camp that I went to teach at once, and he was there. And that's been a while back, but he's a super nice guy. Are there any musical dreams, any dream projects that you have in mind that you have yet to fulfill? God, there's millions of them. I mean, I, I've always had way, way more ideas than I've ever had time to execute them. You know, as we're sort of moving into new territory here, one one thing that I do feel that our community has been not great at in the past 30 years is sort of developing new context for music. You know, I mean... I mean, I love playing in small group rhythm section type bands, you know, and, uh, you know, all the kinds of things that are more or less straight down the middle of what are, is expected of our community. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the tradition of this music has always been to kind of push, push the boundaries of what can be. And I mean, you know, in, in my department, I mean, the whole, you know, orchestrion thing was, you know, if nothing else, it was an attempt to like, like, okay, what else could music be? What would be another way of being on a bandstand and presenting oneself as an improviser and, and, or as a, as a, you know, player or whatever. And, you know, for me, I'm like always thinking of stuff like that. Like, well, what, I mean, I love playing. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'd be happy to just kind of stay in my room and practice autumn leaves from here on out. But it's sort of like included in the, the mandate of being a musician in, and with the kinds of opportunities that, uh, that I am lucky to be able to get. I feel a certain responsibility to kind of keep trying to ask questions of what, what could be. And, you know, even on the instrument, you know, like what else can a guitar be? What, you know... And, uh, you know, a big part of my uh, focus has been that question, like, okay, I love, you know, playing on a ES-175, you know, like like I did the first, you know, X number of years. But, you know, guitar is really great when you're sitting around the campfire and everybody's singing Michael, row the boat ashore. I mean, that's one of the things guitar does best, you know, so why do we avoid that sound completely in this realm? You know, so record like New Chautauqua maybe went to that, you know, and then, you know, the many different types of guitars that I've been trying to integrate into the one sound that is whatever my sound is, you know, it, I don't think of it as being limited to a particular guitar. It's sort of guitar in a general sense, you know, and, that's kind of included nylon string stuff like with Charlie or, you know, and on and on. I mean, all those different things, the guitar synth, I mean, they're all an attempt to sort of say, okay, what are some other contextual possibilities I can offer to other musicians about what the guitar can be? So if I think about the, the broader thing of like looking ahead, I'm really interested in just like, okay, you know, Maybe records aren't a thing anymore. Gigs are still going to be gigs, but what else can there be? You know, what 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 else can we invent as improvising musicians as a platform to be? And I I, I look around the you know my peers. I mean, John Zorn is a huge uh, hero for me as somebody who just relentlessly is inventing ways to be John Zorn. 
and he's a he's a real model for me. On the note of being, what is the best thing about being Pat Metheny? Well, you know, 20 years ago, I might have given a bunch of answers in a lot of different ways, but after after the you know in the last 20 years the best thing is being around my kids you know there's nothing even even close to that and and my whole fam my wife and all of that i mean that's like i mean i started a little bit late with all that stuff and i had a lot of fun before that and did all kinds of cool stuff and had all kinds of cool things happen none of that even begins to compare to the incredible experience of, of, you know, watching a, a bunch of kids grow up and being around them and learning from them. At the end of all of my interviews, I always like to give the artist the stage. We don't know when someone will listen to this. This is going to be the first interview of the year, but we also don't know where. I know you're going to be going to Tokyo for a stretch, but what would you say to anybody who's listening in? Not just limited to music. Well, that's a tough. That's a, that's a pretty big uh, platform there. I mean, you know, I, I do, of course, like many Americans, have incredible concerns about the state of our our country, and and I see actually what's happening right now not so much as a a, a thing in itself, but as the result of like years and years and years of a certain kind of cultural decline that concerns me. I mean, I really do believe that the idea of what America can be is a great idea, but it's really gotten, you know, sort of perverted, I would say, through the, you know, the kind of perversion of capitalism that's happening right now. At the same time, the larger issues of what it is to be a human on earth uh, are, are good to keep in perspective. And my perspective on that is that, you know, at least once every two months or so, I go down the street to the Hayden Planetarium and watch whatever space show Neil deGrasse Tyson has going on, you know, where they, you know, they do that thing where they show the earth and then they start zooming out and then you just see the whole picture. So it's good to always to keep that in mind. And in that sense, you know, I'm very lucky to be trading mostly in the currency of music, which is actually much closer to to what all that is than any of the day-to-day, you know, foibles of our still very primitive species, you know. So, you know, I, I just uh, try to, to, as much as I can, be be in the thing and, and trying to do to do uh, as much as I can to, 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 to keep things positive. I would encourage everyone out there to check out patmatheny.com if you see that there's a show in your area, or if you have to travel a little, <laughs> I suggest you go. I think you'll enjoy it greatly. Thank you very much for spending time with us. My pleasure. It was great talking to you, Paul. All right. Happy trails. (laughs) Same to you, and happy holidays to you, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for including me in your thing. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Be good. You too. Bye. More information on the Paul Leslie Hour is available at thepaulleslie.com. Thanks for listening.
Goodbye.